0: Please take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 14. Uh, We're in a little bit of an aside this morning before we continue in the text. Last time we were together in Genesis 14, we learned about the battle between the confederacy of the kings of the east, uh, led by a man, a king named Chertleomer, and the confederacy of kings from the Jordan River Valley, uh, led by the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. The kings of Jordan were defeated. Their people and their possessions uh, from the cities of the plains were taken and they were being taken back to uh, presumably the east and that included Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions. And the focus of our time last week was this idea of ungodly associations, that there is a danger that we face when we put ourselves in positions where we are associating with wickedness for one reason or another. Uh, In the case of Lot, he was associating with wickedness, specifically because the plains of Jordan were fertile and well watered. He found there a place where there would be physical or financial prosperity, and he said, I will endure the cities of the plains in order that I might have this prosperity. But he did not just endure endure the cities of the plains, he ended up living in Sodom and he got caught up in their destruction when their choices led them indeed to be destroyed. And we warned, we, we, we took that warning to our, into our own lives and we thought about it in our own lives and much of the application was about things such as the friends that you keep, the amusements that you engage in, the places that you go, those, play, those manners in which you associate yourself, but we also talked about other ones. We talked about the fact that, by virtue of the fact that we're United States citizens and we live in a nation that has uh, uh, persisted in wickedness and is, 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 um, is being very aggressive in its wickedness right now, we should expect that our association with this country will bring about a manner of consequences. We also talked about this particular state and mentioned that because we have chosen and we have each chosen to live within the state of Minnesota, by doing so we we must acknowledge that we are accepting the fact that we are in a place where uh, there is an aggressive push toward wickedness and that that will come with consequences which should we choose uh, before the Lord to stay will inevitably uh, fall upon us at least in part as well. And so that was our, our thought process last time. Abram's uh, nephew Lot was taken, and uh, were it not for uh, Abram, a godly man who loved his nephew, uh, the consequences would have been dire. We are reminded in that, though we didn't talk about it last week, that would, would be to God that perhaps as it relates to our nation or even our state, God might raise up godly men who would stand in the gap and who would, who, who would uh, help us so that we might not have to face all of the depths of the consequences. Abram armed his trained servants and proceeded with his own confederacy of three other men, brothers, to bring Lot back and to, be, to also bring back all of Sodom and Gomorrah and the, the, the lands of the plains, all of their goods. And this is where we left off last time. We're just reading a couple of verses today. I'm going to read beyond where our text is um, a little bit. But we're going to read verses uh, 17 through 20 together. The Bible says this. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that would be Abram, after his return from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth." And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. So we pick up our narrative with the king of Sodom coming out to meet Abram as he returns with all of the goods and of the people of Sodom who were taken away. Now, last time we were together, we read in the text and it would appear that the king of Sodom and Gomorrah died within the battle. So this is most likely not the king of Sodom that was the king of Sodom who went out to battle because we would believe, and now it's possible from the text that when it says that that they fell and the rest fled, that that didn't necessarily mean the king of Sodom died, but it seems as though the king of Sodom died. So maybe this is his son, maybe this is who knows who, but one way or another, there's a king in Sodom and he comes out uh, to meet Abram as he returns with, all of these goods, and the meeting took place in this valley, the Valley of Shava, which is the king's dale. The historian Josephus connected this location to a valley just north of what would be today Jerusalem. And the Bible says that the king of Sodom came, uh, that with the king of Sodom came a man who was the king of Salem, that would be an early name for the, the, the city of Jerusalem, and his name was Melchizedek. And this Melchizedek brought with him bread and wine, a sort of celebration of Abram's victory over these kings of the east. And the text then mentions that Melchizedek was, and this is the title that he is given, priest of the Most High God. And that's the phrase that I'm actually going to focus in on today as I kind of take a step back. I'm going to be focusing in on a a particular theological idea that has begun to really spread over the course uh, of, of the last several years. And I'd like to address this idea. Maybe you've heard about it. Maybe you have not. But I, um, I, I don't keep myself dramatically connected to certain elements of Christian culture. So when something like this finds its way to me, then generally that means that it's spread pretty far and wide before it actually gets to me. Um, and, And so I want to address it today and think through these ideas together as a means by which to help us orient ourselves to the nature of God. So this phrase that we see here is the Most High God, sometimes simply called the Most High. It's a description, a designation for the God that we know as Jehovah, the God who created heaven and earth, specifically given to set him apart from all other things on he- in heaven and on earth that would call themselves God. We uh, had a missionary last week and uh, that, that missionary is going to Thailand. And one of the things he said about Thailand, and this is not uncharacteristic of those areas of, of um the Far East, is that in Thailand, because they're Buddhist and, and, and they have what, what would be considered by us at least to be a, a relatively polytheistic worldview, um, they are not able to just go and say, there's a God in heaven who loves you and Jesus is his son and he died on the cross for you. You have to peel back layers of confusion and error before you can even build up. And one of the things, this is true in China, this is true in Thailand, among many other Oriental uh, um, uh, cultures, one of the things that you actually have to do is you have to bring them to a mindset of monotheism itself—that there is a single God, a God that is above all gods—and uh, what what our uh, what what missionary Nichols said last week is that. As they go and they share the gospel in Thailand, he said, and this was on Tuesday night, I believe this question came up. He said, we actually had to invent a new word for God in order to express the idea. And what he said they invented is kind of the merging of the word God, which in the Thai mind would mean all sorts of different things, right? With the idea of king, the God king or the King God, the Great God. If we, if we use the, the Hebrew vernacular, it's the Most High God. The God that is above God's, the God that stands above all other claims to God, all other claims of authority. He is the Most High God. And as I said, this name has uh, been a part of, of a kind of controversy of recent days. Historically, the church has interpreted this title, Most High God, To be a simple but unambiguous statement of authority, of superiority, of sovereignty, of preeminence. As a matter of fact, the other place that we particularly see this phrase, most high God, apart from Genesis, is Daniel. When Daniel's interacting with Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, and we see this concept that there are their gods, and then there's the most high God. The God that stands above all gods, the God that is above all things in heaven and in earth. And no matter what men might seek to elevate to the position of divine authority in their lives, be they kings, be they spiritual beings, be they idols that they fashioned with their own hands or even themselves, the God of the Bible stands above any and every claim of authority and power. That has been the orthodox and historical interpretation of the idea of God As the Most High God. And as a general rule, I would say that and I'd move on and we continue to exposit the passage. But in more recent days, statements such as this, such as this, this Most High God statement, has been taken by various theologians to be a different admission. An admission that there are, in fact, other spiritual entities called gods who are part of what has been labeled a divine council. And this is the phrase that has taken uh, somewhat, uh, has, has come into vogue uh, in, in recent years. The idea of God and his divine counsel. That Jehovah operates at the head of a council of beings who are all divine and by which God rules over the things of the world. And so God has a divine counsel of, 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 of that which are called lowercase g-gods by which he administers the things in the world. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about where this comes from uh, and, and, and a little bit about where, this, where th- this has gone historically in a little bit. But the most recent resurgence in evangelicalism was through a book written in 2008 called The Unseen Realm. And this is kind of what kick-started this newest fad. So we're about 15 years into this really starting to take root in evangelicalism in in a, a focused way. And the focus of that book begins in Psalm 82. And in Psalm 82, the Bible says this, a Psalm of Asaph, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. Here we see a statement that God stands in a congregation of the mighty. If you were to look at other translations, it would say that God stands in the midst of a divine council. And it's not necessarily the case that uh, that's a bad translation per se, but that's where the idea of the divine council comes from. And uh, from this, various theologians take this as a direct proof that there are other divine beings over which God stands in authority, a divine council, and that it is not just... The one we know is Jehovah, but rather there is a whole divine council. Some even saying that, 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 that Jehovah is the divine council, and then there's a Most High God at the top of that Jehovah divine council. And if we reorient our minds into this perspective, one can actually find evidence for it all throughout Scripture. Not only is God called the Most High God, and we could say, well, yes, right, by implication then, God is the highest of many gods. And then we find here the idea that that, that God judges among the gods. We also know another name for Jehovah in the scriptures is Lord of hosts, right? Which means he is the Lord over a host, a group, a heavenly group. In several prophetic visions, the prophet sees a host of spiritual beings surrounding the throne of God, right? In Isaiah chapter 14 the account of Satan desiring to overthrow God. He states that he would sit in the mount of the congregation, right? The mount of the, the group. And in the book of Job, of course, we see Satan coming into the throne of God. And the Bible says that as he comes into the throne of God, uh, the, the, the sons of God were there to present themselves before the Lord. And all of this tells us that... Around the throne of God, there is certainly a population, right? That, the, that, that the, the, the space around God's throne is most certainly populated. But historically, the church has seen it as populated with the servants of God, created beings that are not gods themselves in the, in, in the sense of divine, but rather created beings that God has put around him for his worship, for his glory, and for the tasks that he has assigned them to do. An assembly, not of a council to counsel God who collectively decide and act related to humanity, but rather an assembly who come together to worship the Lord and to do the Lord's will. And I would like us to spend our time today thinking through this controversy just a little bit, and then, of course, we'll apply at the end. Because very similar to when we talked about the Nephilim theory, and that was quite some time ago now that we talked about the Nephilim, but in a very similar way, in one sense, this controversy does not matter. Regardless of how we would label those heavenly beings, we acknowledge that Jehovah, is uh, God is above them all, is God Most High, that there is... um, that, that, that there are beings around God's throne, that God uses spiritual beings to accomplish His will, and there are fallen spiritual beings operating in contradiction to His will. And so we see those things and we say, well, regardless of what we would call them, whether we call it a divine counsel or not, does it really matter, Pastor? I mean, we see God talk with other spiritual beings. We see him talk with Satan. We see him go back and forth with Satan in the book of Job. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 22, if you recall when we were there in Sunday school, God looks at the the, the spirits that are around him and says, "Who who will cause Ahab to go to war and to fall? And there are various spiritual beings that come up and make suggestions as to how they would go about doing it. And one comes up and says, I will be a lying spirit in the mouths of his prophets. And God says, that'll work. Go do that thing. And so we certainly see this interaction. This is not something that, 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 that we would, that we would uh, shy away from, that we would reject, that we would deny in any way, shape, or form. And if that's all we're saying and we're just, we're just bantering back and forth about how we're labeling them, no big deal. No big deal at all. You call them gods or you call them angels or you call them whatever it is, as long as it's just a label, no big deal. If the idea of a divine council is that there's interaction among spirit beings in the spirit realm, not a problem, and we would likely even be willing to agree. But, on the other hand, that's not where a lot of people take this. Within the realm of the evangelical world, as I said, it is bringing the, the controversy is being brought to a point where many believe that these gods, because they are called gods, and this is a divine council of gods, of which there is one at the top, are beings that are not created as God is not created. Or are beings that, though lesser, have been given a measure of authority that is akin to divinity. Recall early in Genesis, we spoke of our understanding that God created all things and as such He stands outside of His created order. This is what makes God omniscient. God is not omniscient just because He's omniscient. He's omniscient, all-knowing, because He's outside of His creation, and so he sees all of what's happening in his creation. This is what makes God omnipresent. God is not just omnipresent. We think of it as God is everywhere, and God is most certainly everywhere, but he's not in everything, right? The idea of him being omnipresent is that God has a created order, and he stands above his created order, so he sees everything that's happening in his created order at one time because he's above it. In the same way that I, you know, I, I uh, have a, an affinity for, for, for building computers, that as I, When I build a computer, I can see everything that's happening in it at one time because I'm above it. I've built it. I can see all parts of it. I know what's happening in it because I'm above it. I'm outside of it. If I'm inside of my creation, then I can't see everything that's happening. But if I'm outside of my creation, then I can see it all, then I know it all. And of course, this is also what makes God omnipotent. He has all power over creation because he has made it with the word of his power because he stands outside of it. But if the angels aren't just ministering spirits, but rather divine, if they are a divine council of gods, well, this challenges the notion that they are beings which were created along with the rest of the creation in Genesis 1. And as a matter of fact, when you start to dig into the theology that says there was a whole other creation prior to Genesis chapter 1, which uh, I, I, I spoke of when we were in Genesis 1 and why I do not believe that that was a fact and why I believe that, that in believing so, it, it brings many theological inconsistencies and concerns uh, to the idea of what God is doing in Genesis. Many proponents of this divine council idea would contend that these angels, this divine council, because this divine council is what God uses to affect his creation, then this divine council w- was in existence prior to creation. Which means this divine council are all eternal beings. They are all outside of the created order, including outside of time then. Which means we have now a whole host of, create- of, of uncreated beings or at least created in a different context than our creation that are outside of time, that are thus omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, and eternal. And most will even contend that there is an entirely different created order prior to the created order of Genesis 1. And the door to these theological perspectives, which introduce some truly troubling implications of which we spoke early in Genesis, to the manner in which God presents both himself and his created work, and and his redemptive work, that door is pushed open by this idea of the gods among the Most High God. And to this end, we must be very careful. In fact, if there's no other explanation for what we find in Psalm 82, verse 1, among the many other scriptures which speak of gods and heavenly hosts and such things that are other gods, other divine beings who's counsel, who counsel with Jehovah and who carry out this divine power and this divine privilege, well then, it does in fact cause us to reimagine many historical and theological notions. If indeed there is this divine counsel of gods, well, this could change our perspective on creation as we've already spoken. It would change our perspective on the devil and his work who the devil is and what he's doing. It would change our perspective on spiritual warfare. It would change our perspective on prayer. And it's for this reason that, it, that if you do look into this perspective, it's generally found in the more charismatic wing of the church because that's the place where modifications to the work of the devil, to spiritual warfare, and to prayer are significantly more prevalent. The idea, however, though it is finding its way once again, it's a resurgence into evangelicalism, the idea has actually been around for a very, very long time. The idea is rooted in Jewish mysticism so that if you go back to the Jewish mystic writings, the Kabbalah, you will find this idea of the divine council is one that is almost taken for granted. It's not just there, though. This is one of the underlying bases as well for the Catholic notion that they can pray to and expect intercession from the saints, that they can pray to Michael the archangel or to Mary or to any of the other saints. They regard that these various people have become a part of God's divine counsel and so thus have been given divine authority. And because they have been given divine authority, they ha- that we can pray to them. And in fact, if the divine council exists, then that kind of makes good sense. This idea is also very very common among both Mormons and Jehovah's Witness. Both regarding Jesus as a god, but one who is a lesser god than the great Jehovah God. The Jehovah's Witness say this, this is in their publication The Truth Shall Make You Free in 1943. The true scriptures speak of God's Son, the Word, as a God. He is a mighty God, but not the almighty God who is Jehovah. Well, if there is a divine counsel, a council of the gods, and if Jesus presents himself as one who is the Son of God, well, then I guess that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? The Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, stating in their writings, in the beginning the head of the gods called a council of the gods. And they came together and concocted a plan to create the world and people it. So then we have the Latter-day Saints, and this is what they believe, that there was a council of the gods that was brought together, and among that council of the gods, they chose to create the world that we see today and then to populate that world. And again, God himself was once as we are now And is an exalted man, implying that when faithful men die, they join this council of God's and thus become one of them. One more quote. This is from Brigham Young. When our father Adam came into the Garden of Eden, he came into it with a celestial body and brought Eve, one of his wives, of course, Mormons, right, um, with him. He helped to make and organize the world. He is Michael the archangel, the ancient of days, about whom holy men have written and spoken. He is our Father and our God, and the only God with whom we have to do. So we find then that the resurgence that began in 2008 in evangelicalism with this book, The Unseen Realm, is a resurgence of something that has not, it it is not a rediscovery of, of, of what we might consider to be sound doctrine, but a resurgence of that which is found in false doctrines and this lends me to be very skeptical, indeed concerned about it and that's why it's perhaps a little bit of a big deal it could be a big deal again, if we're just using different terms, no big deal but if we commit ourselves to this idea and it gets too far then it becomes a real problem so then we need to ask the question Psalm 82. Is there another explanation that is reasonable for this statement in Psalm 82? God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. That one's not hard. But what about this? He judgeth among the gods. Are there other gods? Well, notice how Psalm 82 continues. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. This is interesting. God says that He judges among the gods, and then what does He instruct them to do? He's instructing them now to defend the poor and the fatherless, to do justice to the afflicted, to deliver the poor and needy, to rid them out of the hand of the wicked. These are things that He is regularly instructing the nation of Israel to do, right? We continue, verse 5. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk in the darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Now, one of the things that is worth noting here is that not all translations translate this the same way and some of the translations do not reflect necessarily that which the King James uh, Bible reflects in its translation. Uh, Many times, a lot of the arguments where a person is going back and forth and saying the Bible says this, no, the Bible says that, um, we'll find are actually, well, yeah, your Bible says this and my Bible says that. And this is why the debate over translations is not an unprofitable one. There is a reason why we want to have a, a thought process as to the nature of our translations. I was talking to someone not too long ago, and we were going through this very issue, and as we went through this very issue, it got to the point where he was saying one thing, and I was saying another, and I said, there's something wrong here. This isn't making sense. And then I, uh, I said, what, what, what translation uh, have, you, have you typically been using? And he typically used the English Standard, so we went to the English Standard, and I said, aha, this is our problem. Your Bible says this, my Bible says that, yours gives this impression, mine gives that impression. Impression, and so I'm going to be using the uh, as, as we do. We use the King James version of the Bible. If you have another uh, version, you might be rolling your eyes and saying, "Well, Pastor, my Bible doesn't say that." Yeah, and, and that's that's why we talk about the the issue of translations, and of course, um, that's something which. Um, uh, many of you know what the, what the church teaches on that. Uh, some of you are learning what the church teaches on that. If you haven't learned what the church teaches on that and why we stand uh, on the King James uh, version of our English Bibles, um, please come and see me and we, I'd be happy to, to talk you through that um, and, and to explain that. But in our King James Bibles here, notice particularly what verses 6 and 7 say. I have said, ye are God's. And all of you are children of the Most High, but ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. This gives us essential insight into the idea that Jehovah stands among the gods, that he judges among the gods. These gods, in the midst of whom Jehovah is described here, are also called children of the Most High. And those who will die like men. They are charged with taking care of the poor and the needy, with not regarding the wicked. Now, this is not a very adequate description of a divine spirit. So then the question comes is there another way that this term gods is used in the Bible? And if we go and we look through the Bible, absolutely there are other ways that this term gods is used in the Bible. It can certainly speak of the idea of the divine, right? The name of God. The word God in the scriptures is Elohim. That is actually a plural. It is the word gods. Uh, many people will uh, call that the um, divine plural or the... Or, or the, the um, uh, kingly plural, there are several different ways, um, or the majestic plural. Those are various different ways that it is described, and the idea is that um, God refers to himself, as many kings refer to themselves, with the plural pronoun as a means by which to show that they represent something greater than themselves. So a king might get up, and in his edict he would say, we decree this, and we decree that. And the idea there is, I'm decreeing it, but I am representing my people. And God, in the majestic plural idea, uh, he is called God, but it is given in the plural as a means by which to reflect uh, the majesty or the authority that He has. So, God can certainly speak of the divine being that we call Jehovah, but it can also speak of other things. It can speak of men or spirits, of power, prestige, or wealth. It can speak of judges. It can speak of rulers. It can speak of prophets. It can also speak of inanimate objects, which other men worship, what we would call idols, uh, that that people will worship their gods, gods of stone, gods of wood. And yet God is still the word being used there. It's actually a somewhat flexible word in the Scriptures. Consider Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. The Bible says this to Moses after Moses had been... uh, uh, Showing his power, the power of God to Pharaoh. He says, The Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a God to Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. Due to Moses doing these great miracles in Egypt, which directly challenged the power and the authority of Egypt's false worship system, in the eyes of Pharaoh, Moses had become a God. Now, the idea here is not that the Lord had elevated Moses to some status of divine himself, but rather that, that, that Pharaoh saw Moses as having divine power. Pharaoh, Pharaoh had elevated Moses in his own mind to the status of God, though God had not elevated Moses to the status of God. God had not made Moses a god. The Jehovah had not made Moses some sort of divine person. He had simply endowed Moses with power. But Pharaoh saw Moses and thought of him as a god in the same way as he may have thought of Horus or Osiris or any of his other gods that he had on the shelf. This is how Pharaoh saw, through his pagan pantheism, Moses. Moses. And so we find that the term God can speak of a man who has authority. It does not imply a divine spiritual being per se. And this brings us back to Psalm 82. To take Psalm 82, verse 1, to state that it speaks definitively of a council of divine spiritual beings and a, divine, a, a council of divine spiritual beings who are themselves actually gods is interpretively unnecessary at best. It could mean that there are other divine spiritual beings, except that divine spiritual beings are not going to die like men, as verses 6 and 7 tell us. But there is another explanation, a more consistent explanation, that these are men. All right, so who are these men that God is saying, ye are gods? Is there a scenario where Jehovah labels uses the label God to speak of men. Well, yes, we saw it in Exodus chapter 7. And not only yes, but this particular passage, ye are gods, is quoted in the New Testament. And because it's quoted in the New Testament, we get to have particular and unique insight into what this verse means. Not only is it quoted in the New Testament, but it's quoted by Jesus himself. John chapter 10. Beginning in verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and ye believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believed not because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. This was becoming a trend. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do ye stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. So the controversy here is that Jesus uh, made himself God, though he be... A man. And of course, we know that this is true. Jesus did make himself God because he is God. I and my Father are one, Jesus said. He uh, makes it very clear that he is one with the Father and that they are in fact one. So now Jesus is going to answer them to this idea, and he is not going to do so in a manner to completely. He is not going to do so in a manner that proves that he is Jehovah. He is going to do so in a manner uh, by which he argues that many things are called gods. Why is it such a big deal if he connects himself with God? So verse 34 says, Jesus answered them, is, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken... Say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemous, because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe me, uh, not me, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. You notice what Jesus said there in verses 34 and 35. Jesus quotes Psalm 82, verse 6. It's possible as well. There's another place where ye are gods is found in the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 23. But that passage doesn't really fit the context of what Jesus is saying here in any way that would make that the likely passage Jesus is quoting. Uh, much more likely Psalm 82, verse 6, where God says, ye are gods. I have said, ye are gods. And states that God was calling them gods unto whom the word of God came. Now, the word of God in Psalm 82 was not being written to a divine council. It was being written to a group of people who were not taking care of the poor and the needy. It was written to a group of people who would die like men. And Jesus said, unto whom the word of God came, that was who was said, ye are gods. So that when God says here, ye are gods, he is not speaking of divine beings, but humans and specifically of those who are called the children of the Most High. We know that the people under the covenant of Israel were called the children of God by virtue of their covenant with Him. We know that those who are in Christ are called the sons of God. John chapter 1 tells us, As many as received Him, to him to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. And the reason why is not because we have been made divine beings when we accepted Christ as our Savior, when we initiated that relationship with God, but rather because we were made representatives of God on earth. We were made emissaries of the great divine being, emissaries of the Most High God, Yes, within a certain context, as we find in John chapter 10 and Psalm 82, the the label that was given to, to, to the children of God was, ye are gods. Good, fine, that label, it's all well and good, the Bible does it. But this is not a statement of divinity itself, but rather a statement of divine association. Those who have been allowed or enabled by Jehovah to work a part in His plan. And I believe that through that we have the scriptures necessary not just to confidently state that this idea of a divine council of gods in the sense that there is a council of divine beings that all work together to administer the work of God outside of the Godhead, outside of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is at best dangerous in the way in which it plays out but seems significantly more likely to be distinctly incorrect as we compare Scripture with Scripture. And that's what I'd like to do for the last few minutes before our application. I'm going to take you to various Scriptures, and we're going to reason through this idea together. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, the Bible says this, "...see now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand." Notice the text doesn't say there is no God like me. It says there is no God with me. Well, pastor, he says that he judges among the gods. Yes, but if those gods are actually the children of God, those gods are those who will die like men. If those gods were the leaders in Israel, those who were divinely appointed by God to do a work in Israel and to represent God to Israel in in an appreciable way, that makes sense. But it also makes sense that God would say when he's talking about his authority over all things in heaven and earth, there is no God, not just no God like me. That would make sense if there were a divine council of gods. But what he says here is there is no God with me. Okay, pastor, how do we then reconcile this with the multitude of statements and warnings about other gods? The Ten Commandments which state that we should have no other gods before the Lord. With the Old Testament statements of the gods of heathen lands, of Baal and of Molech and of Ashtaroth. And of course, the Old Testament speaks to this idea as well. When Gideon is called of God to deliver his people from the Midianites in Judges chapter 6, he tears down the altar of Baal in his city. He tears down the altar of the God who is called Baal. And the people were very upset, right? He did that in the dead of night. He goes in the dead of night and he tears down this altar. In the morning, the altar's gone and they know that Gideon did it. And they're very angry. And Gideon's father says this in Judges chapter 6, verse 31. Joash said unto all, uh, to all that stood against him, Will ye plead for Baal? Will ye save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death whilst it is yet morning. If he be a god, let him plead for himself, because one hath cast down his altar. And of course, no one ever came and pled for that altar, because he is not a god. Baal never did plead for himself. We see a similar account with Elijah on Mount Carmel, don't we? 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 27. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Speaking again of Baal, either he is talking or he is pursuing or he is in a journey or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awaked. As the prophets of Baal called upon the name of their God from morning until night, cutting themselves and jumping up and down, seeking to get their God's attention, Elijah mocks them and he says, he's a God, right? Oh, but maybe he's sleeping or maybe he's pursuing someone else and he's out of town. Or maybe he's talking to someone right now and he can't be bothered to regard you because he's talking to someone else. Sure, he's a God, but maybe he's busy. And this is absurd. Because if there is a God, then that God is outside of the system. And if there is a God outside of the system, then he is not bound by something as, as trivial as time. Because time is a part of the system. But of course, Baal was not answering because... There is no Baal. He is not a God. He is a figment of the men's imaginations. He is a God in their minds. He is a God in their hearts, but he is not a God in God's reckoning. And of course, we can continue through that line of reasoning, but I only want to take you to one more passage. In this passage, Paul is speaking to the nature of the spiritual liberty that man has been given and its relationship to the practical issues surrounding daily choices. Eating meat dedicated to idols is his particular issue. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, we read this. Now, as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, a charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him." as concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols. We know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all uh, things, there we go, and we in him, And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. And in my mind, 1 Corinthians 8 kind of settles the debate. Yes, there are things in this world which are called gods, both in heaven and on earth. There are things which people regard as gods. There are people which things elevate to the status of God. There are men who believe that they are God kings, gods on earth. But though there be things that are called God in heaven and earth and called Lord in heaven and earth to us, that is to those who are rooted and founded on sound doctrine, there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we are in the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. So that... At the end of this study, I find myself in the place that the church has stood on for quite some time. There is but one God, not a council of gods, not a pantheon of gods, one God. And the Bible says quite distinctly that he is made up of three persons. Three distinct persons who function together and counsel together as one God. You say, aha, pastor, a divine council. See, the Godhead is a divine council, If that's how you want to define divine counsel, then sure. The Godhead is a divine counsel. But that's not how it's being defined today by those who are taking it this way. Yes, there is a Godhead. Three in one. But there are not multiple gods. There is one God. Three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, nor is the Father the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father, nor is the Son the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, nor is the Holy Spirit the Son. But all three function together to make up one God. Like three gears turning in harmony, making one singular machine, the three persons of the Godhead are 100% in unity, 100% in agreement. All three are turning, and all three turning together makes one God, one in essence, quality, and character, though three distinct persons persons, one in will, one in desire, one in intent, one in all things. The Father is the will of the Godhead, the Son, the enactor of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, the empowerer of the Godhead. And together, these three are one. One God. And apart from Jehovah, who is the most high God, there is no other God in heaven or upon earth. Now, When you go out into the world and there are pagans who are doing pagan things and they have their gods in politics and they have their gods in ideologies and they have their gods in mysticism and they have their gods in mythology, there is value to the statement that is made by Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14 that he is the priest of the most High God, There is value to it in the day that you stand before a Nebuchadnezzar-type person because he regards many gods and it is for us to proclaim that though they may serve many gods, we serve the Most High God. But for we, we know that the Most High God is a title for men to understand him, not a title for God to distinguish himself from other gods for 1 Corinthians 8 tells us there are no other gods. But as we read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, that He is the image, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And by Him all things consist. All things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, including that which this group would call the divine council, including that which they would say are gods. All things were created by him and for him. And who is this him? This him is Jesus Christ, who is one with the Father and one with the Spirit, for there is one God and one creator and one sustainer, Jehovah. He is God. They are not gods. He is an uncreated being. They are not uncreated beings. And He not only created all things visible and invisible, but He is before them all. He is above them all. He is greater than them all. He is the Most High God. Our uncreated, eternal, limitless God chooses in His grace to use His creation in heaven and earth to accomplish His purposes. But make no mistake, our God sits alone above the throne. There's none other but Him. And with this, I'd like to draw just a couple of thoughts of application this morning. Application number one. Difference is exciting, but consistency is stabilizing. Initially, I was going to say new is exciting, but consistency is stabilizing. However, I think uh, it's, it would be a misnomer to call this new because it's not new. It's been in Jewish mysticism for thousands of years. It's been in Catholicism for thousands of years. It's found its way into the modern cults of Jehovah's Witness and, and Latter-day Saints. It's not new. Things are recycled over and over again. They're given a new coat of paint. They come from a new angle but the word different perhaps better makes the point recall paul's warning it's in first timothy as well but in second timothy for the time will come When they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap unto themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. Recall Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried away with every wind of doctrine by the sleight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. The commission of the minister of God is to stabilize the church from the winds of doctrine, from the cunning craftiness of men, to keep your feet on the ground when all around you, for various reasons, are compelling you to the interesting and the fantastic. And while there are times in history where the church has been compelled to major corrections or dramatic reformations... Those movements have rooted themselves not in calls unto logic or to reason or to scholarship, but in commendations to the truths of the Word of God in the hearts of men through the Spirit of God. Which is why we are called in 1 John 4 not to try the logic of those who would make claims, not to try the reasoning of those who would make claims, but to try the spirits, whether they be of God. And so we seek unto consistency, doctrinal consistency, spiritual consistency, and in this consistency we find stability, because the different will come and go, but when it's not of God, it will invariably falter on the shores of the consistency of sound doctrine. So I encourage you first off to remember that there's a lot out there, particularly today, that is... New, exciting, different, however you want to call it. May I encourage you to be careful around new, exciting, and different. The fact that it's new, exciting, and different doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. Maybe the church has lost something that needs to be found. Maybe the church has missed something that needs to be uh, reinvigorated. We've seen that happen in history. But my exhortation to you is to be very careful when when new things come along that challenge what has been orthodox understanding from the faith of our fathers and their fathers and their fathers. Because sound doctrine rests upon the stability and the consistency of the Word of God, not upon special interpretations or interesting applications. One second point. Final point. Our God is God, the only God, the Most High God. We do not serve Jehovah God because he is the greatest God. We serve Jehovah God because there is no other God. We don't serve him because he's won the divine battle over the other gods because he is the one who stands at the top of the hill until someone else deposes him. So we'll serve him until whoever deposes him becomes the greater God. No, we serve him because he stands alone on the top of that hill, the hill that he created, the hill of which there is no challenger. As Moses said in Deuteronomy 4, the Lord, he is God. There is none else beside him. We serve God because he is the true and the living God. We come to the word of God because there is nowhere else we can go to hear the words of life. We cling to the character of God because, as Psalm 100 verse 3 says, know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And may we never forget it. We spoke some weeks ago about the fact that God is worthy of our love, that the works of our God commend to our hearts His eternal power and Godhead and His love and His mercy over all creation. Today's message was a little different, a little more academic. The application is perhaps even a little more academic, warning us that we be not carried away by every wind of doctrine, that we be careful with things that are, that, that, that are, are new and different for the sake of being new and different. And yet it's a lesson that is certainly worthy of our remembrance. When God said to Israel in his Ten Commandments, Thou shalt have no other God before me. This is not the Most High God being jealous. This is not because God feels threatened when you or I elevate something else to the place that is his in our lives. In that sense. This is because to place anything before God is to elevate the, cre- the created above the creator. It is to distort the very order of things. It is to put effort after foolishness. It is to whistle in the wind. You and I follow God because there is no other God, there is no other sovereign. You and I follow Christ because there is no other redeemer. We stand with the one who stands alone on the mount that one who has condescended to us who are of low estate, then has elevated us to be children of the Most High God. And may we never forget who it is that we serve. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.